Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Terry Roach came to prominence in the 1970s as a member of a duo with her sister Maggie and then later as a member of The Roaches with Maggie and Suzzy. And her music touched me at a very early age. Um, I thank her during the course of this interview for that inspiration. And talking to her for this episode of Wheels Off was really moving for some reason. She's just really inspiring and the life in music and the the fact that she's now doing a lot of work to sort of honor the the songs of her sister Maggie and the legacy and still continuing to teach music to young people to teach songwriting and to teach guitar i just i really got a lot out of this interview and i really love the spirit that Terry Roach brings to everything she does. I think you're going to love this interview. I know I did. And if you have never listened, please go dig up um, the music that she's made over the years. I would maybe start with the album, The Roaches, the the debut album um, from 1979, and then move backwards and forwards from there. I think you'll love it. Please welcome to Wheels Off, the great Terry Roach. Welcome to Wheels Off, Terry Roach. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you logging in? I'm logging in. Okay. I'm just going to show you. I realize the, the <laughs> listeners are not going to see this, but it's a very rainy day here. I don't know if you can see out my window. This is Ooh, New York. Nice so, view. Yeah. Yep. So listeners, we're looking down on New York City. I'm going to guess, are you Midtown, Upper West Side-ish? Where, where are this you? This is Times Square. You're oh. looking straight down 43rd Street. And wow. I'm at, I'm at 9th Avenue and 43rd Street. And you, uh, you grew up in New York, right? Well, I was born in New York. Uh-huh. Um, and then my parents moved out to Queens. I was born in Manhattan. Sure. They moved to Queens, and then they moved to Westchester, and then they moved to New Jersey. And that was high school for me. So when people say, where are you from? You know, we always said New Jersey, because that's kind of when you start becoming uh, aware of yourself, you know? 
<laughs> sure. It, it sounds more fun to say New York, though. And eventually you did come back in, right? That's where y'all started doing music right. together. Yeah, yeah. We we moved. Uh, well, Maggie and I moved back in, um, you know, when we were teenagers, really. And uh, we stayed. Here. I've been here ever since. I actually go between here and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Wow. I split my time between those two places because um, Gary Dial, my partner of many, many years, he and I have a villa on St. John in the Virgin Islands. And the villa is like a people come on a weekly basis, you know? Mm -hmm. So we were down there because I, I get hired to uh, teach songwriting in this local grammar schools on the island. And so, and that's, that's sponsored by ASCAP. So it's um, ASCAP sponsors, like they have a grant from ASCAP to bring me down for a week every year for the past 10 years, maybe. So in 2020, I had a choice of coming in February, March, or April, and I picked March 7th. Oh, no. <laughs> to go down to the island. And so. You never came course, back. Well, we never came back except for to do like gigs and stuff, you know. Um, I've been back uh, to do the Sunset Singing Circle, which is in Battery Park City in May and June. So I've come back for that. I come back this week. I did a show at the city winery, but we've been basically, we moved into the downstairs apartment of the villa and became the caretakers of the villa. Oh, that's so cool. So it's interesting, you know, it's, it's like going Times Square and then <laughs> yeah. Moonswept Villa. The villa is named after the final Roach's record, Moonswept. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's okay. This is um, an aside, but I'd like to ask: Do you did you ever teach guitar at New School? Yes, I did. My wife studied guitar with you at the New School in the late nineties. Oh, of course, yeah, that's so, great. What's her name? Erica, Erica Ian at the time, but she stopped playing. But when we got together, she says that I took up all the oxygen, and I'm like, ah. I wish you'd still play. It would be so great. But yes, you taught her long black veil. And she said oh, she thought God. you were so great. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Um, so congratulations on the new book. It's so exciting. I, I really connect with it. I love the idea of it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? I'm assuming this is the project that you're most excited about and uh, fixated on at the moment. Absolutely. And I heard that you did not receive your copy, your actual copy, which is here's Ooh. the book itself. It's actually very cute, this book. It's what a beautiful square. picture that is. Oh, that's so sweet. And that was the publicity picture that was used when Maggie and I were hired to go on the coffee house circuit. I was 17, she was 18. And someone sent me that picture who had saved it from, from 1970. Wow. And the, and the title, Can You See That Sun, was a song that we wrote when I was 12 and she was 13. 
One of the few songs we wrote together because she mostly wrote all the songs at that point. But that was like the first one. So I thought that was a perfect title for what this is. So the, what happens here is that you have uh, you have this story. Uh, of, you know, the, the book tells the story of, of us as teenagers and how we we learned to play the guitar from the TV, from a folk, <laughs> folk guitar with Laura Weber, which I actually really used a lot of what Laura Weber did when I had the new school gig teaching beginners, you know, because it was a great course that, that she had, and it was on PBS. So that's where we learned to play the guitar. And then this is like a bunch of, uh, clippings from newspaper articles around this teenage tour you did, which is crazy. The fact that two 17 and 18 year old girls drove all the way across. I mean, I'm not saying boys, you know, it's just, you're so young. <laughs> you're so and, young. and that, that Rhett is the story uh, that I've always wanted to tell because that to me is very unusual. I mean, there were a lot of people in my generation that, you know, ran away from home or this kind of thing. But this was an official tour. We did it for two years and wow. we went all over the United States. We traveled, you know, they sent us all the way out to Idaho, down to Louisiana. We didn't go to Texas. <laughs> Almost. Almost Texas, but wet, lots of West Virginia, Wisconsin, South Dakota, you know, they just sent us to all these places and we had never been anywhere. So here we were, just the two of us going to these colleges and Maggie wrote a lot of songs during that time, you know? So I just want to show you with the book, there's this story. We, we eventually were discovered by Paul Simon and he took us under his wing, he signed us to his company that he had with his business partner, Michael Tannen. And so we did a record with their company and it was called Seductive Reasoning. So this book tells the story a little bit about that record, but it also is live recordings of just the two of us. So they were not mixed. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. were they were restored by Tom Milioto, who is a very good musician, but also was like meticulously re restored these recordings that had been sent to me from and those shows. No, well, it was some of it was so there. I had two different sets of recordings. Some of them were from like 1973 wow. on this tour. And then some were from 2000 when Maggie and I decided to revive the arrangements, the same ones and go do a duo tour. So those were recorded by Pat Tessitore up in Albany. Sure. And the ones from 1973 were recorded by Doug Sklar in uh, 
San Diego. So both of those engineers sent me the recordings and that was the beginning of thinking to do a project because I had no recordings of just the two of us. You know, we had the, the produced record but so the book, this is the, this is kind of the, the heart of the book is the lyrics, right, are printed. And apostrophe. I, apostrophe, apostrophe to the wind. Yes. And that, that's one of Maggie's very early songs. There are unreleased songs that have never been released as well as ones from the album that we made. But the cool thing is, so I did a, a drawing for each set of lyrics, has a drawing. And then if you look on the facing page, there's a photograph and a QR code. The QR code takes you to this song. To the song. This is very futuristic stuff, Terry. Yes. yes. I love it. Yes. I love it. It's so sweet. It's such a time capsule. Was it was it weird time traveling back for you? Well, it was because, first of all, when I received um, the recordings, it started with somebody um, contacted me on Facebook and sent a message with an MP3 and said, my friend recorded you when you did, you know, your tour in 2000 and would you like these you know and and i thought yeah i haven't got any recordings of just me and maggie together so so then when when you know then when these two full shows two full shows came you know at first listening to this I mean, I just bust into tears, you know, oh. I, the sound of it was so familiar, but so primal back to like, and I realized like this was the beginning for me of music itself, you know, learning how to play the second guitar and how to do the harmonies with Maggie's songs, you know, that was my and we didn't play other songs. We only played her songs, you know? I love that. I love that. It's literally familiar. I mean, it's family. I remember the first time I heard Hammond, the the I was in high school, the the Roaches song, and it's the harmonies on that kind of changed my life. And I know a lot of people who had a similar experience. Your guys' voices together, it's just unworld otherworldly. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I think I, it was explained to me that people have a, the same shaped vocal cords, kind of like the way you'd have the same shaped nose in a family, you know, and that's one of the reasons why it can sound like, you know, so blended like that. That's that's fantastic. And so how long did you thank work you on for this the com compliment? That's oh. a very nice to hear, you know, because as you know, when you put out a record you never really you know somebody and half the time somebody comes out and slams the record <laughs> in print you know and you think oh no this person just put a gate up between mm -hmm. the people that might want to hear this and us you know i know how long did you work on this book it seems like a big project 
I'd say, well, I think the recordings came to me in, I believe, I, I believe early 2019. And at first, oh, so Michael Tannen, who had been uh, Paul Simon's business partner, and we had signed uh, with them and made the seductive reasoning record. I told him about the recordings and he thought, let's try to get an audio book together and let's do interviews with people that remember you from then, people that worked on the record, because there was three or four different producers, um, including Paul. There was Paul Samuel Smith. I don't know if you know his work, but he produced Cat Stevens and an American tune, you know, and then the Muscle Shoals, Swampers, they wow. sent us down there for a couple diff different sessions. A lot of the record was done there. So Michael said, let's call, let's find all these people, the people that remember you on the coffee house circuit, and also people who heard the music later, you know, and were influenced by it. So we did about 19 interviews with different people. And at that point, we tried to get a deal with like Audible or something like that. And no one was interested. And so it looked like it was the whole thing was kind of dead in the water. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just put all these on YouTube because people should hear them, you know. And then I started doing the drawings around the lyrics. And I thought, I like to listen to music and read the lyrics, but I like them to be really legible. And I thought, how about giving them the dignity of framing them, you know? And then I got into like the pictures, the photographs, and thing, other photographs that people had sent me. And then the landscape photographs, because this project is largely about traveling around, you know, the lower 48. And in those days, there was no red states and green states and blue states, you know, purple states. We went from state to state and were just fascinated with like, you know, Wisconsin had a different kind of breakfast than Louisiana would have, you know, and there were no chain. You didn't have like, there were one or two chain things, but even those were different in the different locations. You know, Pit Grill was down south, Denny's was out west, you know, but it wasn't like it is now where everywhere you go is the same group of things, you know, it was so different. Plus, no internet. So people where we went, they didn't know anybody from New Jersey. The kids in the colleges, you know what I mean? Unless they came from New Jersey, you know, they, so the whole thing, at one point I was able to draw a picture of the 48 states from memory. And I used to do that like as a, barroom trick. You know what I mean? Like I'd say, I can draw the, and people would say, oh yeah, let, let's see. <laughs> sit down and I draw it because we had, for two years, we had gone from state to state, you know, 
And we realized like, oh, I never knew where Illinois was. I thought that was the same as Idaho, you know? <laughs> and you worked the map and Maggie drove. Yes. I love that. That's crazy that you could, you must have a very visual brain in some way. I think I, I learn visually, you know? I mean, how about you? Would you say oh. that about yourself? Um, I know that when I go to sing a song that I can't quite remember, I'll put myself in the seat where I was, where I wrote the song. Like I'll, I'll be at the upstairs kitchen window at the garage apartment writing Big Brown Eyes or whatever. So maybe I do. Maybe I do have a visual brain. I hadn't thought about it much. But I, I love that you could draw all 48 states. I can't even imagine someone doing that. I keep wanting to get that skill back because it was very, you know, it was a real good show off thing. You know, people were like, wow, you know, that's amazing. But I haven't done it in a while. And uh, I think I might start at the Mississippi and go out, you know, from there. Yeah. So I love this this vision of two teenage adventure sisters driving around the lower 48. Um, I wonder for you, do you remember when you knew you were going to do music? Do, was there an epiphany moment as a kid or was it, you know, but was it before you even remember that it was just part of your life? Well, I would have to say that it was not a childhood dream of mine. Like a lot of people that I meet that are musicians professionally, they talk about the moment they saw so-and-so on the Ed Sullivan show, or the moment they saw this band or heard this music, they wanted to go to New York. And I didn't have that. I, I wanted to work with animals. I thought I wanted to be a vet, you know? Um, I didn't know anything about being a vet. I thought I wanted to maybe live on a farm, you know, and work with horses and cows and stuff. You know, that early on, that was my thing. But then when the Beatles came out, and then this TV show, Laura Weber, folk guitar with Laura Weber. Um, hold on one second. I'll, I'll, I, I'm going to go find the Laura, Laura Weber episodes on YouTube, because that's got to be such great stuff. I might even give them to my 16 year old daughter who's got a guitar. There it is. Right. Wow. I love her smile. I would I would learn guitar from Laura Weber. That's great. She was really good. You know, every week you'd learn like three chords and you'd have, um, you know, a song like and so a folk song. And so this was 1964. The Beatles had just come out. So and we had no musicians in, in our family. You know, my parents gave Maggie a guitar. How old is your daughter? 16. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great course, you know, if you, and, and she is on, on YouTube. Unfortunately, she's no longer living. And I really wish I had sent her a fan letter. Yeah. You know? mm. Yeah. But um, that was the only instruction that we had. And Maggie, she was the one that was on fire about writing songs and making it up herself, you know? And so I became the person that was going to do something else on the guitar besides what she was doing, you know? And uh, she once told me that she remembers me as being very 
aggressively competitive with her about the guitar, you know, which I don't remember that. I just remember really hooking in with, with playing her songs on the guitar. And then, but I never had a desire to write anything myself, you know? So it was in a weird way, we were really defined. We were very balanced, you know? She would teach me the melody and I would figure out what to do on the guitar. She had an amazing ear for harmony and she would, um, you know, she needed someone to do the melody in order for her to do her harmony thing. But we were, we were a year and a half apart siblings fighting constantly. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, sisters, you know, <laughs> you know, and we were opposites. You know, Maggie was much more kind of, um, well, she was very deep and, you know, inward. I'm a real extrovert. So the combination of the two was really interesting, you know, because it was extremely bonded because of traveling all over the place with the, just the two of us, you know. It sounds very complimentary, and and you, your voice is more suited to the like the 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 lead, and like you've got more. What what register would that be? Um, soprano. I was a soprano, yeah. yeah. And then and, and, her, and Maggie, Maggie could also go high, but she uh -huh. was down in the tenor. That's range. what I was going to say. She had a really distinctive kind of lower voice. Yeah. Wow! Just got the two of you singing together is so great. I love the idea though of these. 18 months separated teenage girls driving around America fighting and <laughs> yeah well you know the thing is the fighting happened the the bickering when which is younger my father used to call it stop bickering <laughs> and but that was when we were like younger but once we got out in the world it was kind of like us against them you know we got very uh we looked out for each other and we got very bonded in a way that honestly i've never seen a bond like that since you know and i think it had something to do with this traveling around uh and being in f you had to get streetwise but we had never been anywhere so we didn't have streetwise we weren't like i mean high school I was at goody two shoes. I had never smoked a cigarette or had a drink. You know, it wasn't like we were the, you know, bad kids in high school. We were very, you know, kind of rule following, but we had this thing that we did with the music, you know, and that's what I think. Then I, at some point, got hooked on this is what I'm doing with my life. I didn't go to college. And I didn't become a veterinarian. You know, I was I was out doing this before there was a decision made by me, you know. So I love that. I love what I love looking at the arc of your career and you've done so many different things and made so much great music and been a part of so much great music. And I wonder throughout all of it, like you seem like you um approach things with a really even hand and like you keep such a great attitude uh I feel like you are like a beam of light but I'm 
I'm assuming because I've never really spoken to anyone that doesn't deal with moments of darkness, negative uh, voices in in our in our head, the sort of thing, interior stuff, um, negative. Um, internally generated obstacles, things that try to keep us from doing the thing we should do or being the person we should be. I wonder when you come up against that, what have you figured out as a way to get through that? Well, first of all, I I believe that life is, you know, primarily suffering, you know, seriously. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a extrovert and am always a good sport about showing up and smiling and stuff like that. But I would say basically the music, it's in the music. If you listen to my songs, Maggie's songs, Suzy's songs, the darkness is in the music. You know, the very first song I wrote, Runs in the Family. God, what a great song. Sorry to interrupt you. That is a great song. Thank you. But you know, you can hear in the song, the pain, You know, so I feel like a lot of what you're describing um, that and of course, you know, from being out there having a career, you know, singer songwriter, getting your songs out there, the ups and downs of what that actually is, you know, like the fact that you've got to fill those seats. Yeah, you've got to sell that record, you know, that all of that stuff, which people don't necessarily see when they're listening to the music and they go, why don't you come out to Chicago? And you're thinking, (laughs) you know, the reality of me going out to Chicago means that someone has to pay for that. People have to show up and sit in those seats. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. And of course you do, of course you do, you know? So, and so I would say that the, when you take the career and then you've got the songs and now there's this imperative to write songs because you've got to come out with your next album as soon as your tour is over. At least this is the way it was for us. You know, now it's, Things are done differently with YouTube and viral and all that. But in, in when we were doing it, you did your record, you went out, you toured the record, you went back and wrote your next record. See, that's why these songs on, on the book, they did not have that pressure. We were not signed to anything. We were wandering around the country. And that's these songs, most of them came out of that experience. So there's not a pressure on the actual songs, but there's a lot of pathos and um, a lot of, of a lot of pathos in the music that she wrote. In fact, one of the people we, um, you know, I used little quotes from the various interviews. And here is something that um, a young man, young to me, you know, he's in his 30s, named John Lanthier. He's a filmmaker out in Seattle. He had taught himself to play all the songs on seductive reasoning. And that blew my mind. Someone told me about him And so I did an interview with him, but listen to what he says. He says, I don't know the extent 
to which these songs were drawn from life, but I imagine they came from something that was very deep inside of her. I don't know how anybody could write songs like that without going very, very deep. You know, and so I think in a way, does that answer your question? Yeah, I love that. I love I love what you say about dignifying the songs, because I feel like we we live in a world where art tends to be either commodified or thrown away or both. Mm-hmm. And and to to, re, you know, to remember these songs Maggie wrote and that that moment in your lives, creative lives and, and just your the your human experience. I think it's so beautiful. And I think it's it's something we need more of. I love that. Yeah, thanks, Rhett. I mean, one thing I would say is different now than when we were doing this is the um, flood of of releases and people. You know, I feel like almost everyone I meet <laughs> is playing guitar and singing songs and stuff. You know, that was when we were doing this, it was we were unusual for the fact that we were doing that. And there was no like everything now is so instant you know it's like it's uh it came out last week and then you know you say to somebody did you hear that interesting song and oh that was last week you know it's like well wait a minute you mean that's it you're not gonna like go into the thing and see what is it and that's what i felt like i was doing with this book i was saying check out this song by itself here's the qr code don't just like flip through this whole thing and say, oh, I did that or that was last week. You know, it's like there's a lot going on in the story. Also, the different things that people say in the book, because they're all older now, too. You know, so the different perspective on what that was that whole time period, you know. I try to find silver linings in all this stuff and and one of one of them that i've found with regards to the sort of tower of babel effect of the modern era of music um and the way that most people consume it is that at least with streaming everything is right there and it's as if it's all new for instance i had played my 18 year old son um some of your music uh, just sort of in passing um, a while back. And then when I went to visit him recently at college in Vermont, he showed me a playlist he had made and he had gravitated back and found some Roaches music and put it on his playlist in the midst of all this other stuff that came out, as you say, yesterday or today. And and to him, it was just as uh, valid as, mm-hmm. any, as anything, because it was just all right there on an equal playing field. So I'm trying to find the silver linings. And one of them is that, you know, for instance, an 18 year old can fall in love like I did when I was 18 with your music. Well, also another <clears throat> another thing is that I think what you just described about streaming, that's very positive, mm-hmm. I think. Do you know what I mean? Because people are hearing all sorts of things then you get to hear different things from different time periods without even knowing who who is this. You and know? it's not stigmatized by it's the fact that it's it's some old thing. It's it right. might as yeah, it's right. Great. And I know for I know for a fact that he went around and played for his friends. You know, the, and he was proud of this discovery he had made of your music. And how oh, great really, is that? 
That's really nice. Well, thanks for playing it for your son. Of course, you know, it's I'm I'm showing off that I that I have good taste. Well, you know, I I keep like when people ask me about this project, they well, you know, um especially the people who are helping me publicize it. You know, they say, "Well, who do you see as your audience?" And I said, "Well, all these songs were written by a teenager." You know what I mean? So, in a way, it's like for the Roaches fans and the older people, it's a nostalgic thing like, oh, I remember that, you know, but for a teenager, it's like it, it, this person was 16 years old when she wrote this, you know what yeah. I mean? So I, I really think I, I tell everybody, this is a great Christmas present for your <laughs> young people in your life. It's you true. know what I mean? It's like. But like you say, there's no stigma of like, oh, this is grandma's music, you know, because yeah. we all get that sort of thing from. Uh, right. You don't you're not quite there yet. I'm going to be 70, you know. Wow. Yeah. And that's like, you know. I mean, I'm from the generation that that the the one of the slogans was don't trust anyone over 30 over 30 i when i dropped out of college my idea was i if i want to do music i better do it now because they kick you out when you turn 30 right exactly, exactly. <laughs> so i wonder speaking of that that sort of um not disconnect between being older and being younger but maybe the the opposite the connection if you were to go back in time no, sorry. Let me rephrase that. If you were to meet a 21-year-old version of Terry Roach, but in today's world, what advice do you think you might give her? Oh, that's a great question. Um, because of the fact that today's world is so different. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. most people, when they hear this story, the first thing they say is like, what was what was up with your parents? They let you do, you know, how could you how could parents let two teenage girls go wandering around, you know, and and that's a whole different climate than it then, you know, we were hitchhiking, you know, at one point we were in Montana, and our car broke down. So we hitchhiked across that state to Missoula, where the gig was, you know, and uh, and hitchhiked back to get the car. And, you know, people were hitchhiking around a lot, you know. And, you know, so now, of course, I don't know that I would say to a 21-year-old to go hitchhiking around unless it depends on the particular 21-year-old, too. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think of myself as particularly brave. I was up for the adventure, but I was not I didn't know I would ah here's something I would tell a 21 year old learn martial arts <laughs> seriously you know learn like the guy in the in the um like I'm in New York here now and we're having a bit of a problem with crime the guy in the hardware store a couple months ago I went in there and he gave me some pepper spray and gave told me how to use my cell phone to hit someone in the head who was coming at me. Do you know what I mean? Wow. Mm. So, you know, like that, 
so if I, okay, if I was 21, but the, but the question is, you don't want to become fearful and afraid either. But, you know, if you know some martial arts or at least how to Tai Chi, how to get out of the way of something yeah. might be helpful. Yeah, well, so you're advocating rather than paranoia, you're advocating agency. Yes, because what I see is today is too much fear and I can't go out. I'm going to live at home with my parents. I am I'm, I'm scared of the world. And I think that you can't be scared all the time. You know, you got to calm yourself down with various things. In fact, in the book, I talk about my own relationship with drawing because I've never studied drawing or whatever, but I used to make um, a set list for the roaches. Every, I have every roaches set list for every show that we ever did. Did you decide on which songs would be played or was that a by committee you just were charged with writing them? Suzy decided the, the songs and she would give them to me in the afternoon. And then I would make the set list for that night. I'd make three, one for each of us and one for our sound engineer. And they would be full of like sort of jokes about where we were and where wow. we were that is brilliant. So what I'm looking at is a full color rendition of a beautiful set list. That's incredible. That's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. But but also think of it this way, like you're on tour. Suddenly you're in an airport. I used to get, I had my pens and my index cards. I'd get them out. And all of a sudden you've, you've taken up two hours worth of waiting for your plane. And, but to me, it was very much a self-calming activity, you know, and it was not something I was studying. I didn't have anybody telling me what was wrong with the drawings. You know, I'd try to put little jokes in there that each person in the band would, you know, and then I just put them in the, in the dressing room. Everybody'd take their set list and I kept all of mine. So I have boxes of these, set lists from how, how many fans do you think have those um framed on their walls at home how what incredible would that be to leave a roaches gig and have a piece of art that you just collected from the base of the microphone stand well and and um Suzy used to leave hers on stage so there were lots yeah. of people and sometimes i'd hear from somebody saying i've got the set list from minneapolis you know and then when we played Carnegie Hall, which we only did once. Wow. Um, and the record company, Warner Brothers, they didn't think we were going to be able to sell that room at that time. You know, they said, this is a little soon, but we did. We sold it out and we t- we made buttons. Uh, we wrote like song lyrics and, you know, things on 3000 buttons. And our father went around with a big basket in the lobby of Carnegie oh. Hall and they were free. So people would say, oh, how much is a button? And he'd say they're for free. And so they each had like these little drawings and, and ly- pieces of lyrics and stuff, you know. How proud must he have been, your father, at that moment? Well, he was our biggest fan. He really was. And he knew 
nothing about music. He was not. Our mother was, she played by ear the piano. And he was, he was great. He couldn't carry a tune, you know. Uh, but in the end of his life, he had Alzheimer's. And all of a sudden, he wanted to sing songs. And he was singing like his high school song, you know. And we were all singing with him. And that was the only time I ever remember him singing, you know, because we were the ones that were singing, you know, not him. Oh, I love that. Music is magic. Yes. I can't even tell you how much I have enjoyed talking to you today, Terry. Thank you so much for letting me interview you for Wheels Off and for sharing all of these stories and all of this wisdom. I just, I feel like you are an ambassador for um, a really um, thoughtful way of living a creative life. I really appreciate the time you've taken today. Thank you, Rhett. Thanks. And good luck on your next gig. <laughs> There's always a next gig, isn't there? Where are you going next? Um, I'm uh, So we're taping this. I'm in Dallas and I'll be playing in a couple of nights in Dallas. Um, but just on and on, on and on forever and ever. That's great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate your interest in, in this project. Oh, this is so great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.